Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Pat Cummins. I'm Josh Hazelwood. I'm Elizabeth Kawaja. I'm Mitch Marsh. I'm Darren Lehman. I'm Mitch Stark, and you're listening to The Unplayable Podcast. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll preview the third Magellan Ashes test at the Wacker, talk cricket curfews in the backward point segment, have a crack at play it or leave it, and recap the opening weekend of the Rebel Women's Big Bash League. Here to get through all that and more is a man with not one but two middle names, champion batsman Mike Hussey. Welcome back, Mike. G'day, Mr. Ferris. How are you? I'm, I'm going all right, Mike. Can you reveal those two middle names for us? <laughs> You've been doing your research, have you? Uh, yes, uh, Edward and Killeen, both passed down from my father. Killeen's an interesting one. Is that an Irish name? Correct, it is. Yes, you are very well researched. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I believe there's some Irish and some Scottish heritage in my family. So, um, yeah, definitely no English, though, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, well, let's get on to the Ashes. Australia head into the Perth Test with a 2-0 series advantage after a comprehensive win in the day-night test in Adelaide. Joe Root won the toss and elected a bowl. Australia made 9 for 442 declared, with Sean Marsh making a superb unbeaten 126. Australia's all-powerful bowling attack then dismissed England for 227. Steve Smith then somewhat controversially decided not to enforce the follow-on and his side was skewed of under lights before falling for 138. Set 354 to win, England looked good at 3 for 169, but the Aussies proved too strong once again, bowling the tourists out for 233, Stark taking 5 for 88 and winning by 120 runs. Mike, another test in the balance, but Australia flexed their muscles in the fourth innings once again. Yeah, you're right. Good summary there, uh, Sam. Um, I, I think I think probably Australia's first innings was the difference between the two teams in the test match. And uh, actually had a quick chat to Cameron Bancroft on uh, day five, the morning of day five. And he thought as much. He, he thought perhaps, um, you know, there's still a lot of runs for England to get. And uh, if they could just get a couple, of, a couple of quick ones on day five, they, they were confident they could do the job. And that's exactly how it turned out. But, um, yeah, Australia was sensational in that first inning to get over 400 on, you know, on a uh, difficult pitch, a bit of grass there. And uh, the pink ball obviously goes around a bit at night time. Um, England probably would be disappointed with how they started uh, with, with the brand-new ball. Um, they had some nice conditions to bowl overcast and, and what have you, but um, couldn't really probably get the length right. They were probably just a little bit short, and it just enabled the Aussie batsmen to get through that initial uh, period quite comfortably and then um, and then blossom from there. So another key probably part of that first innings was um, the first night session um, where I thought uh, Sean Marsh and Peter Hanscom uh, had to fight really hard to get through um, that those nighttime conditions where we know it, it can be pretty challenging for the batsmen. So, I think personally, it was a, yeah, it was a very tight test match. Other than Australia's first innings, where, uh, where and that's where I think the game was really won or lost. Mike, how demoralising is it for England to be out of it, then claw their way back to a position of power, only to once again, you know, be hammered? <laughs> yeah. Well, you said in your opening that uh, it was controversial that Steve Smith uh, didn't enforce the follow-on and. Uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion in the media area about it. But as it turned out, um, it was the right decision to make because Australia came out in the, in the last innings and, uh, 
and blew England away again. Although England did fight pretty hard, it, it's got to be said, um, in the early part of their last innings and uh, put up a good fight. But Australia on the last day was sensational. I thought Josh Hazelwood, again, just set the tone magnificently with uh, a couple of crucial wickets. You know, the big one of Joe Root, um, really sort of set Australia on the way to, yeah, as you said, it was a really comfortable victory. Um, in a test match, I think England would have uh, given themselves a really good chance of winning coming into it because they, they generally play the, uh, the, the moving ball uh, with both bat and ball um, really well. So, yeah, that, that'll be a pretty demoralising loss for them and um, they're going to have to show a lot of character to bounce back. This pace attack has been six years in the making, Mike, and it's finally come to fruition. And just how good is it? Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins and Lyme. There's been a lot of talk in the press, in the media, from pundits and plus players already that this could be one of the all-time great Australia attacks. Well, it's definitely going that way. You know, you've got a feel for the English batsmen. It's just sustained pressure. Um, and, and look, it might be controversial or, or uh, you know, um, uh, contentious, but you've got to say it's the best all-round attack in the world at the moment. Um, they just complement each other so well. Uh, they they all get on well. They've been you know starting to play a bit more cricket together. So as long as they can stay fit, you, you can only see them getting better um, in, the, in the near future. So um, it's pretty ominous for not just England for this Ashes series, but for every batting order around the world that has to come up against Australia in the next few years. All right, let's look at the third test. Australia had made, have made one change to their squad that played in the first two tests. Chad Say is a swing bowler out. They've drafted in all-rounder Mitchell Marsh because they're worried about the pitch at the whack. They might be a little bit flat. They might need the extra overs of an all-rounder. Peter Hanscom has looked a little bit out of Nick. He hasn't been in the greatest of form this summer, Mike. Let's start with the incumbent. Peter Hanscom, what's he have to do to make sure that he plays in this next test match? Well, well there's not much he can do now. He's just got to hope that the selectors re, uh, re keep a bit of faith in him. Um, now, I guess he's just got to get to Perth, um, prepare really well, and, and try and get in a nice, positive, confident frame of mind. And and so, if the selectors show that faith in him, then he's he's ready to go and uh, and and you know give his best effort. That that's all he can really do. There's no point in worrying about all the external stuff and the distractions going around. Will he be picked or will he not? Um, that, that's for the selectors to make that call. Um, if, if it was up to me personally, um, I, I would stick with him um, because it's, pretty it's a pretty tough call to drop a guy uh, straight after a day-night test match to that pink ball where it's tough for the batters. You know, you, you need a bit of luck. Um, yes, OK, he did battle a fair bit um, and has probably battled a little bit this summer um, so far in, in Australia, but um, he's still... He's still got a record, a pretty good record. I think he averages about 47 in Test match cricket. Had a good start to his international career. Uh, on the on the other side of it, on the extra bowling side of things, um, you know, I, I think the four paces, uh, the four bowlers, sorry, have, have done a fantastic job uh, working well together. They complement each other well. They'll be well rested after having uh, the best part of a week off. Um, you know, leading into the next Test match. So, personally. I don't really see the need to change that, that things up too much. Um, and look, and, and that's that's me as a proud West Australian saying, you know, uh, saying something like that. Whereas, you know, I'd love I'd love it if Mitch Marsh got an opportunity as well. He's it's good to know that Australia's got some class players on the side that can come in and do a great job. Like Mitch Marsh has been in great touch for Western Australia with the bat. He's probably come back with the ball um, a little bit quicker than what, what um, people expected. Um, and so that's probably the, the added bonus and probably why he's been rushed into this uh, Australian squad. Um, you've got to say his bowling's probably still going to be a little bit underdone. Um, you know, he hasn't bowled a lot for Western Australia after coming back from a long-term uh, shoulder problem. 
Um, so that would be a little bit of a worry. But having said that, he probably doesn't have to bowl a lot of overs in the test match. It's probably just helping out with, you know, five or ten uh, per innings to sort of help out. So, um, and then I guess the other one that's probably unlucky is Glenn Maxwell. He, you know, he's um, he's been on fire for Victoria with the bat, and certainly hasn't done anything wrong to um, you know to get an opportunity if he was given one. Now, Darren Lehman spoke on Sunday when he arrived in Perth that the pitch will be the determining factor whether Marsh or Hanscom plays. Uh, but if I look at it a little bit more broadly and cast our mind further down the series, that if it's a flat wicket in Perth, it's going to be a flat wicket in Melbourne where there's been three draws in the JLT Sheffield Shield, which means they would probably need an all-round option there as well. And going to Sydney where they play a lot of spinners, they could bring Steve O'Keefe in perhaps, as they've done in the past couple of years, and then they might rest it quick, and then all of a sudden the all-rounder needs to be there for the third pace option. So if Marsh gets the nod here and Hanscom does get dropped, Marsh could end up playing the last three test matches of the series, but we've got to get through Perth, and we've got to see what this pitch is like. <laughs> There's no point worrying about Melbourne or Sydney just yet, uh, Mr Ferris. Uh, let's just worry about the Perth test. Let's pick the team that we think is going to be best to win the Perth test match. Because if Australia wins the t- test match in Perth, the ashes are secured, and that should be the only focus at this stage. So um, if you're talking about the pitch at the Wacker, um, I believe there's a bit of grass on it. Um, generally speaking, I think in the last probably five to ten years, you look at a lot of the historical scores, and look, there's certainly some outliers there, but generally speaking, you know, the, the first inning scores are a little bit lower, um, maybe in the 200s, and then um, it starts to really flatten out and um, and and get better for batting on as the game wears on. There, there might be some cracks open up if, if there's some heat around in Perth, but it normally doesn't do too much off the cracks, and it's more sort of a psychological thing seeing those cracks in front of your eyes. So, um, you know, I again, and and that's probably more reason why I would stick with Peter Hanscom to, you know, let's give him one more opportunity. Um, if he struggles here in Perth, then perhaps then you can make to look, uh, look to make a change for Melbourne if, if, if you think that's the way to go. But um, give him another opportunity. Back him in. We've won two test matches in a row. Um, there, there's no real need to change the team unless unless one of the bowlers is sort of feeling a bit of fatigue. But but I, I doubt that very much. All I'm saying is that if he does get picked, I can see him playing the next three test matches if they go along those lines of needing an extra bowler on a flat wicket. All right, I'm not getting too far ahead of myself. I'm just putting it out there, Mike, okay? <laughs> okay, no worries. No, you stick, stick to your guns, mate. I, I like that, but I, I'm not even looking, not looking at Melbourne just yet. I'm, I'm worried about Perth. All right. Uh, England. Now, their coach, Trevor Bayless, hinted after the Adelaide Test and again after their tour match here in Perth that uh, they're going to probably go with this, the same 11. Um, they reckon he's got, the players have proven or have showed that they can perform at this level in, in fits and starts. Um, if they're not going to change the personnel of the 11, what can they do to reverse their form? What can they? How can they shake up their 11, the batting order, the bowling perhaps, to get a better result? That's a really good question. Um uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do. Uh, I, I think I think it's difficult for them. You know, there's it's been hard because the players that are on the sidelines um, they haven't really been able to do much to to really push for a spot in in the eleven. So I guess the only positive for them is if they're getting a bit of continuity in their play in their players as well. Um, they, they they're getting plenty of looks at the Australian bowlers. So hopefully that they're confirming their plans against them and and, uh, and will get better and better at playing. The more you face someone, the hopefully the, the, the better you get against uh, playing against them. So um, hopefully from their point of view, that's, that's something that they can they can sort of uh, address. Although having said that, um, there's, there's a few 
the Australian bowlers have got a, uh, got it over some of the English batsmen, so so it's going to be difficult for them in, the, in that respect. I, I think um, a positive was the way Jimmy Anderson bowled in the second innings. Um, I, I know it was uh, under lights and with the brand new ball, but he really got that ball talking, and and once he gets that ball moving. Um, and, and much like Chris Wokes as well, once they get that ball moving, they're, they're pretty tough customers to play. So that, that'll be a positive for, for England, although having said that, the conditions are going to be different in Perth. So um, I, I think from an England perspective, they've just got to keep going. They've got to keep fighting, um, uh, keep, um, keep in a positive mindset and a positive frame of mind um, and try not to back down and, and, and try not to let the negative thoughts and doubts slip into their minds because... Yeah, it, it can be tough when things aren't going your way. The opposition's playing well. Um, you know, you're down in the series to keep going forward. But, but that's the only thing they can do. They've just got to keep hanging in there and keep fighting hard. And it's amazing how in this game things can turn around pretty quickly if, you, if you've got the right attitude. Mike Johnny Best has batting at number seven. He looks to be England's second best batter behind Captain Joe Root. Is he batting too low? Should he move up the order? Personally, um, I, I was surprised that he was batting that low at the start of the series. Uh, and I thought he might bat ahead of Moeen Ali and, and Moeen Ali might bat down one. So from, from that point of view, then, yeah, perhaps you, sh- you could look at that um, uh, and, and move Johnny Bairstow up uh, at least one place ahead of Moeen Ali, although Moeen Ali's looked reasonably good as well, but perhaps he could bat ahead of Dawid Milan as well. So maybe that's something you can look at, but, you know, is it really going to make a massive difference in, in the context of the, the series? Um, yeah, I, I think... I think um, Besto's uh, played okay. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you and say he's, he's looked at the next best batsman behind Joe Root. Um, I, I still feel like he's um, he gives you a chance. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that's necessarily going to make a huge difference. Here's this week's Backward Point. This week's Backward Point, Mike, is about curfews in cricket and are they good for cricket, Sames? Now, we've seen England, they enforce one after Johnny Bairstow, I don't know, welcomed Cameron Bancroft uh, with a headbutt. Um, a midnight curfew was enforced there and then they lifted it when they got to Perth after the Adelaide test and on the same night that they uh, that the curfew got lifted, Lions batsman Ben Duckett has tipped a beer over the head of Jimmy Anderson, uh, which what what caused that, we don't know. When they put a curfew on a team, Mike, is it kind of like the do not touch, do not enter sign, you're going to do it? I mean, surely these are grown men. What's going on there? Can they? How can they not control themselves and keep getting into these positions? Yeah, well, I, I agree. I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't like the curfew side of things and being placed on them and then taken off them and placed on them again. And uh, you know, it, it's sort of a bit of a headmaster over the schoolboys sort of thing. So I've never liked that kind of thing. Yeah, as you said, that you know they're grown men and. They need to be, you know, making the right decisions at the right time. And uh, it's disappointing, Uh, disappointing from an English perspective. It brings unwarranted distractions to the team. Uh, I saw some of Trevor Bayliss' comments and, you know, he's sick and tired of every time he's up in front of the media, he's talking about all this off-field stuff rather than talking about the on-field cricket. And it must be very, very frustrating for them. Um, My experience is that curfews don't work anyway. Um, Players will get around it somehow if they really want to. But you've just got to hope that these incidents will educate the players um, to sort of say, look, you know, we can't be doing these sort of things. We've got to make better decisions. Learn from these mistakes. Um, you know, like there's some young men, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but actually understanding that it can have a big impact, not only on them and their own career, 
but also the perception of the whole team and the whole country as a cricket team because, um, yeah, they, I guess the perception is not great at the moment of, of the England cricket team. And, and look, I'm sure 99% of the players, you know, are very disciplined, um, are very proud to be playing for their country, do the right things 99% of the time. But unfortunately, a couple of incidences um, can, can give the whole team and the whole organisation a bad, a bad name. You said you experienced the curfews doesn't work. When was the last time you were on a, a curfew in a team? <laughs> uh, I don't think we've ever had curfews, actually. You know, when I was mixed up with the Aussie team, um, you, you, know, you, you were treated like grown men. You're expected to do the right things at the right times. If you stepped out of line, you were punished for them. At the end of the day, it's, it's your own career on the line. Um, and if you step out of line, you, you're jeopardising your, your whole career. Um, so the choice is yours at the end of the day. And uh, so, um, you know, we, we had some incidents along the way where that were just dealt with in-house, dealt with pretty severely at times. Um, and, and it was sort of um, set, set sort of a, I guess there's a line in the sand saying, you know, if you want to cross it, that's fine, but you're going to be punished pretty heavily. Now it's time for Play It or Leave It. Let's get to some more fun stuff. It's Play It or Leave It time. Mike, now after a ripping first week, you went a little bit backwards after the second test. <laughs> I don't remember that. Come on. I'm Surely a bit, not. Let's explain it. Okay, so the first one last week was, uh, will there be a technical declaration? You said yes, there would be, uh, but there wasn't one. Smith's 9 for 4, 42. That wasn't technical. No, I guess not, but it was tactical that he didn't enforce the follow-on. You know, I know it was a declaration, Ooh. but, you know, it's, it's, it's along the same lines, and there was a lot of conjecture and a lot of discussion about whether he should or shouldn't have. Um, and, and a lot of good judges, I guess, thought that he should have enforced the follow-on and the game might have been over earlier. However, it turned out to be a masterstroke by Steve Smith. He kept his bowlers fresh. They kept firing on day five, and uh, Australia came home and romped home, you know, in the end. So, uh Good decision, Steve Smith. Well done. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll say it's off the glove. Off the glove, one to, <laughs> the one to third, man. Off the glove, one to third. Okay, okay three, three centuries struck last year. You said uh, there would be, you played at that one, there would be at least three centuries. Just the one from Sean Marsh, mm. Western Australian former teammate of yours. So you got that one wrong, unfortunately. Yeah, disappointed about that. The ball actually did a lot more than, than I was expecting. I, I, coming into the game... Um, the groundsman said he was going to have less grass on it than he did from the previous year. And, and so for me, that told me that the um, I thought there was going to be very, very good batting conditions. But uh, no, the ball certainly went around corners a lot. I, I think they've actually done a bit of work on the pink ball and yeah. um, improved the quality. Uh, so there's a slightly higher seam on it. And uh, maybe I should have taken that into consideration um, because, yeah, it was, it was certainly a real challenge for the batters. And uh, you've got to really take your hat off to Sean Marsh. What a magnificent century. Um, you know, and, and a match-winning century for Australia. You said there would be more than five sixes in the match. There were four. So oh, that one wrong. That, uh, yeah, that was very, very close. Very close. There's a couple land just inside the Do- road. Doesn't so, matter. Uh, doesn't matter. Sorry, Yeah, mate. okay. Well, you know, I was close, but, yeah, not quite good enough. All play and miss. Play and miss. Somebody outside of Australia's four front-line bowls will take a wicket. You left that one. You're correct. The quartet took Thank all 20. Thank you very much. All yes. done. Uh, Bowlers were outstanding once again. Yes. Uh, well, the test the test will go into a fifth day. Uh, you left it. You thought it would end on four, day four. Oh. It went day five. Just went in there. 
And uh, oh, this I is... it, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic test. It really was going into the fifth day, coming on day five, not knowing who was going to win the test match. So much excitement, so much hope from the English crowd as well. Who turned up in great numbers. Um, it was just really exciting for Test cricket. Absolutely loved the test. I'm happy to get that one wrong. Nine balls in, it was all over though. Root and Wokes gone by Josh Hazelwood. <laughs> and finally, now this one you have to be honest with us. Um, you said that uh, you wouldn't put on two kilograms after mm. eating all that delicious food at the Adelaide Oval and in the city itself. Um, can you confirm? Were you on the scales? What did you um, tell us? I, I'm going to give myself a pass mark, but I think I might have put on about 1.8. So <laughs> I think I've just scraped in. It was a very, um, the food was very good again in Adelaide, but it was also a very social time in Adelaide, yes. catching up with past players and friends that I hadn't seen for a little while. Uh, it was a lot of fun, um, and it also helped for the uh, uh, a day-night test starting a bit later. I could sleep in a bit more in the morning. Excellent. All right, this week's. Now, the WA players in the test match, we know there's going to be two. There could be three, so you've got to keep that in mind. The WA players for Australia to combine for more than 240 runs in the test. 240 runs. So that's an average of it. Well, if it's only if it's three of them... That's about 80 each. Mm. Oh, and, uh, and I'm banking on Mitch Marsh not playing, so that's probably two. Um, I'm going to oh, I'm gonna let that one go, but I'm nervous about that one, I've got to say. So, so less than 240 runs, okay. Is that, is that for the match or is that for, the, for an innings? No, nah, for the entire match. Oh, actually, no, I might have a little play at that oh, one. Oh, he thought about leaving it. I that one down the third minute. Oh, all right. thought he's... about letting, letting it go, and then I've, I've swung back late, and I'll, I'll play a shot at the end. All right, he's playing that one. Okay, seven players. Here's a good one. Seven players have played 150 test matches. Alistair Cook is going to reach that milestone at the Wacker Test. Two players, Jacques Cullis and Alan Border, scored centuries in their 150 test match. So Cook to become the third player to achieve that feat. Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um... I'm going to, oh, I wouldn't put it past him. That's the thing. I'm hoping not, but I would not put it past him. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a score, but um, I'm hoping it's under 100. So, oh. No, I'm going to, I'm not playing at that one. Okay. Now, the highest Ashes score at the Wacker is Ian Redpath's 171 in the first ever test at the venue way back in 1970. This is going to be the last Ashes test at the famous ground. And uh, your play to leave a question is, that score will be broken. There will be a new Ashes high score in this test match. Um, no, I'm going to let that one go too. I think the um, quality of the bowling will be too good from both sides. So uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to let that one go through to the keeper. Okay. Now this is my personal favourite one for this week. More than five new balls will be used in the match. <laughs> More than five new balls. Yep, so you have to work this out. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play at that one, yeah. I, I think they will. Maybe only just, but I'll, I'll have a little dabble at that one as well. So you're thinking maybe two each in the first innings of each side, then one each for the second? See, I'm thinking I'm thinking and, England get bowled out cheaply after winning the toss and batting first, and then uh, straight <laughs> use a couple of new balls, and then they win by an innings. Well, you never know, but um, no, I'm, I'm backing whoever bats first is going to do it tough, but just get over the 80 over mark for both innings. Uh, I mean, sorry for the first innings. Then the team batting second, similar. It's going to battle away, but just get over the 80 over mark. 
and then I think it's going to flatten out and then one team's going to have to toil for a while. All right. Now, speaking of which, the captain after Adelaide, the captain who wins a toss will bat first no matter what. Mm, good question again. No, not necessarily. I think if there's, a, if there's plenty of grass on the pitch and it's a bit moist, um, I think the, the, both captains will consider, um, consider bowling first. And the reason why I say that is it normally flattens out as the game wears on. However, however, I would consider um, batting first as well because it normally is quite slow on the first day but quickens up a bit on the second day. And um, much like a Brisbane sort of track, and that quite often as it quickens up, it doesn't do as much, but it does it quickly. And that's when you start finding the nicks and wickets can fall very quickly. So I think both captains will consider bowling, but... And Joe Root might bowl, but I think um, uh, Steve Smith will bat. Okay, so you're going to leave it. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I leaving that? I think, <laughs> I think yeah, that one's fizzed around. Yeah, you're going to leave that one. And finally, now there's, I don't know, how many, a couple of TV stations, four or five radio stations um, that are going to be broadcasting this match. So more than 200 times per day, the Fremantle Doctor will get mentioned. <laughs> are you going to have to count these, are you? Yeah, I'll get, I'll get someone. I'll get an intern to do it. Two hundred times a day. You know what it's like. At the end of the third session, the doctor comes strolling in. They talk about the wind change in direction, which end the bowls are going to bowl from, where the way the ball swings. They'll have some not, old yeah, expert on there saying, well, "Back in my day, you know." <laughs> I'm not playing at that one. I'm letting that one go as well. It'll get mentioned, no question. I might even mention it myself a few times, but uh, not two hundred times a day. Um, that that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Look forward to another <laughs> exciting Ashes Test at the Wacker starting on Thursday. No worries, mate. Looking forward to it myself. Should be a beauty. The opening weekend of the Rebel Women's Big Bash League started with a bang. Sydney Sixers all-rounder Ashley Gardner smashed the fastest ever WBBL century from just 47 balls against the Melbourne Stars. Gardner was one of two century makers on the opening weekend alongside strikers opener Susie Bates, while Elise Perry made a whirlwind unbeaten 91. The Sixers also posted the highest team score ever in the WBBL, a whopping four for 242 from 20 overs, due in large to Gardner and Perry's incredible knocks. After the first week, Adelaide strikers sit atop the points table undefeated, with the Sixers close behind in second place, Perth Scorchers and Sydney Thunder the other winners. Head to fantasy.bigbash.com.au forward slash WBBL to take part in WBBL Daily, and don't forget to sign up to BBL Fantasy while you're there. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week to wrap up the third Ashes Test, but until then, head to cricket.com.au for all the latest cricket news, scores and videos.